Hello, my friends. Welcome to another segment of what it means to be a Christian. I'm excited about today as we start the fifth chapter of this wonderful epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, as we've been going verse by verse through this wonderful letter that Paul had written uh, to this church, he'd spend quite a bit of time in Ephesus. It is so important to to realize that this life that we have as a Christian is a moment-by-moment intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, You know, and as we have been looking through this epistle, we're already the fifth chapter. We have seen so many wonderful things that are ours in Christ. And it's all because of the mercy that he's had, that God had mercy upon us and sent his Son into the world. Uh, to die for our sins, to be raised from the dead, to impart to us new life. Uh, The riches that we have in him um, has been the course of this study. Uh, Basically, since chapter 4 on, we see in the first three chapters the the incredible wealth in in our position. Uh, Remember, bought for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. The terrible cost of his blood, nothing we have done, nothing we have deserved, and yet God has seen fit to open our eyes. You know, the Bible says that um, that the lost have their eyes closed, that the truth is hidden from them, um, that the God of this age or the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, uh, lest the glorious gospel should shine upon them and they should awaken to the glorious truth that God loves them and has provided a way to himself. And that way is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is true life. You know, remember our verse uh, in uh, John chapter 5, and I hope that you know it by now by heart, because it is one of the most blessed verses on what has actually has happened to us. Uh, and being born again, you know, remember, remember uh, in John 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in that great and wonderful discourse uh, that Nicodemus had with the Lord, uh, which has been so instructive to us all in presenting the gospel uh, and presenting the understanding that a man just is not accepted by God because he's born into a Christian family or accepted by God because he's a Jew or accepted to God because he's a good person. No, in this discord, we see a religious person coming to Jesus and the Lord setting straight of how and what must take place in order for a man to be reconciled to God or or brought back to God. Remember, he said that marvelous thing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 7. He says, do not marvel. I said to you, you must be born again. And so we've seen in the first three chapters of this wonderful letter of our riches. Once we have been born again, we've come to Christ as our Lord and Savior. We believe that he's on the cross dying for us personally. You know, in the Old Testament, as the the priest laid their hand on the sacrifice, or the individual laid his hand on the sacrifice, he was identifying with that sacrifice, that the sacrifice was dying in his place, was dying for his sins. 
was atoning for his sins. And as we come to Christ and believing that Jesus was on that cross for me and for you, taking our sin upon himself. Let's know what Jesus said. Remember in John chapter 5, verse 24, our verse? I sure hope you know it by now. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me shall have everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Remember what Jesus said in John 3.16. We all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so back in our verse in, in chapter 5, verse 24 of John, remember when he says, Most surely I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He believes in him who sent me as the Savior of the world and of us individually. We shall not come into judgment. Why? Because Christ took our judgment on the cross. God judged him instead of us. God struck the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment so that you and I would pass from death, spiritual separation from God, into life everlasting, life with God, fellowship with Him, His possession. And as we've been going through these, this latter part of the epistle to the Ephesians, we finished chapter 4, now we're getting into chapter 5 and chapter 6. In this wonderful chapter today, brethren, we're going to be talking about not only what was the sacrifice, how did God look at the sacrifice of Christ? We'll look at that at verse 2. We're also going to talk about how one should conduct himself. Remember, the first three chapters were our riches and our position in Christ. By grace, we've been saved and elevated up to the position we sat down in the heavenlies with Christ. Remember chapter 2, verse 6. And then the last part, the last four, or excuse me, chapter 4, 5, and 6, how we should walk in that, uh, that position. And that position is a glorious position, reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet we see, we saw in chapter 4, uh, that we've been sealed with him in the Holy Spirit. We see that in chapter 1. We also see that in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed under the day of redemption. And we also go back really quick. Bear with me now. Back to chapter 1, verse 13. It says, In him who you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sin, he knew he was buried, and three days later he rose from the dead. And after hearing the gospel of your salvation, whom also having believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We know from, from the word of God that this sealing not only produces, or I should say procures ownership, but security, but also power. That power that Christ would live his risen life in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this life that we've been given, that we need to walk in, uh, is provided for us 
it has been bought for us and also through the sealing and, and through the Holy Spirit that lives within us produces the energy and the power to walk in that glorious position that we would bear fruit and that fruit be born uh, to the glory of God and that it would remain. You know, there's a wonderful verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. And it simply says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. We're abiding in him. We're abiding in our position. We're the possession of the Lord. Uh, we are his. He indwells us through the Holy Spirit. Now he lays out in his wonderful word, the blessed life that we've been given, that we can walk in a way that not only brings optimum joy to us. <laughs> Jesus said, you abide in me and I abide in you. you see, he's talked much about joy, his joy abiding in us, and that our joy may be full. But that walk produces freedom, produces joy, produces the liberty to walk uh, that's pleasing to the Lord, Uh that gives us not only satisfaction in our day-to-day life, but contentment. You know, it's often been said, brethren, I love this, and I don't know where I've heard it, but it's been many years ago. He who has Christ and everything has no more than he who has Christ alone. Think about that. That is the contentment. The walking this life to the honor and glory of God produces. So as we look at starting with chapter 5 of Ephesians, it starts out at therefore. Remember, therefore. You know, it's a good thing to constantly go through the word of God, especially epistles, and find out why the word therefore is used so much. Or in the King James, it's wherefore. Look back at chapter 4, verse 1. Just completing the first three chapters of of Ephesians and and wondering about this wonderful dynamic. You know, that is one thing that uh, a lot of people that call themselves Christians today don't know their wealth in Christ. And it's a shame because they go around half-defeated. They go around unarmed. uh, They're going around, they're, they're easy to get knocked down. They're easy to get discouraged. Uh, They despair a lot. Doubt creeps into their mind much more than it should, and so on and so forth, simply because they are not walking with the full assurance that when Jesus Christ paid for their sin, they became a new creation in Christ. It wasn't just God was saying, okay, you're a new creation, and I'll see you at the end of your life. (laughs) That's the way a lot of Christians live, brethren, because they don't know the wealth that they have in Christ. They don't know how intimate fellowship with God really is. So after looking for the for the the first three chapters of our position and looking at that word therefore, look at chapter four real quick, starting out as he just finishes that three chapters of wonderment of ours in Christ, he starts out, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. You know, and the and the Apostle Paul, which penned this epistle, also penned the wonderful epistle to the Romans. Uh, some people don't uh, realize this, but he also says the same thing in Romans chapter 12. After he goes through 11 chapters 
of not only what it means to be in Christ, how we've been forgiven of sin, uh, what that entails, the dying in Christ, uh, the freedom we have, the justification we have, and so on and so forth. Even after uh, having 9, 10, or 11th chapter of Romans talking about God is dealing with Israel and his faithfulness there in the, in the truth of Israel as God's people, and he hasn't forgotten them, and he will be faithful, and so on and so forth. He comes to the 12th chapter of Romans, and listen to this, brethren, just like he did when we finished the third chapter of Ephesians in our wonderful position, how he said, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 12, after he's gone through 11 chapters of absolute uh, wonderment of the Christian and and God as his master uh, in orchestrating our not only our redemption but our sanctification our life israel his faithfulness and so forth he says i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your reasonable service it's the only reasonable that after what has been done for us and what is ours in Jesus Christ and the sonship that we have with God, it's only reasonable that we walk this way. It's only reasonable that we walk in the glorious freedom of the children of God, as the Bible would say. We're going to start seeing uh, when we're in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. We're going to see how it starts out and says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Some, some uh, translations say be followers, but therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Well, let's look at the, first, at the preceding verses in chapter 4, like in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by the day you were sealed. 31, let no bitterness or wrath anger, clamor, evil speech come out of your mouth with all malice. But look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. These are attributes of God. You know, I want to uh, look real quick. I, I didn't have the... Uh, I didn't want to really get into this so you know so much as far as uh, you know this first couple of verses, but you know, like I said, this wonderfulness about this program is we can do whatever we want. You know, to get a really good picture of the character that God produces in us by the Holy Spirit, and this character reflects Jesus Christ. It reflects the person we know. You know, you can preach the gospel, and it's the power of the word, and you can convict people. But when you preach the gospel and the power of the word of God, and you match it with the character that, again, is produced not by self-effort, but it's produced by a yieldedness of our life to him that lives in us. Lord, have your way. Produce in me that people might see the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I want to read to you, and we all know it, but it's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, it's not fruits. It's the fruit. It's the multifaceted gem, if you will, of the character of Christ. Listen to some of these. Fruit of the Spirit. Okay, it's not the fruit of the individual. It's not the fruit of Jeff Graham. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to these. Love. For God so loved the world. God loves you. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. You know, joy and peace, the Lord Jesus talked about a lot. Long-suffering. Remember, bearing under a load that hurts patiently. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Bible says, against such, there is no law. So we start out today, brethren, by, by wanting to be imitators of God, his dear children. You know, it's one thing to know. I have a, uh, a story in one of, one of the books that we put out. You know, you could study for years and years and years about uh, Mount Everest, you know, how tall it is or how high it is. And, and, but, you know, it's a different thing to actually go there and experience it, you know, experience the the peaks and the valleys and, and, and the tremendous winds and the tremendous bone-chilling cold and, and its traverse valleys and the snow depths and so forth. You know, it's one thing to know about God, and, and we should know about God. But it's another thing, too, to know Him personally. And I want to read something to you, uh, brethren, and I, and I hope that, that this really touches you because we've all read this scripture, and yet how much, how many of us really have pondered on it? You know, Jesus, uh, he uh, was speaking to his father in, uh, in John chapter 17. And it is a very, very intimate uh Discussion between the son and his father, between Jesus and, and, and his father. And he says in verse 3, he says, And this is eternal life. This is the master speaking. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life, brethren, is, is knowing God, knowing him. We come to Jesus Christ and we we place our faith in him as our sin bearer. And as we, as people might know about God and look at nature and look at, you know, everything detailed that was the intricate details of the human cell and the human eye and the hand and the beauty of nature. And we've talked about these things so often, you know, it's one thing to know that, you know what, an intelligent designer must have designed this. But when you couple that knowledge with knowing him, that is eternal life. And Jesus said that to see him was to see the Father. He says that I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes on the Father but by me. You know, in that in that discourse when... when uh, when Philip says, show us the Father and it will suffice us. And Jesus grieved in the Spirit said, Philip, how long have you known me? 
to see me is to see the Father. How, how can you say, show us the Father? God came and, and presented himself before us in Jesus Christ and walked this wonderful, walked his life, his wonderful, sinless life upon this earth, which you and I could not, which pleased the Father. Remember how, how Peter, uh, James and John went up on the mount to him and, and uh, or on the mountain. Jesus was transfigured before them. And the cloud came over and, and it said, this is my beloved son, hear him. You know, you can go back in, in uh, Genesis and read about where, uh, you know, the, you know, Moses uh, led them out, you know, Exodus chapter 12 and, and so forth. And, and then, and then later on, Moses gives his, his prophecy about there will come one after me, uh, like me, that a prophet God will raise up from most your brethren, him you shall hear. Isn't that the, isn't that amazing how in that prophecy, Moses said, there's going to be a prophet that God is going to raise among your own people. Him shall you hear. And when Jesus was on the mount, transfiguration, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. Hear him. We know God. We come to know God through Jesus Christ. So now we all know about God, but now we know him. And to know somebody and be intimately involved with them and have an intimate relationship and be one spirit with them, as the Bible says, God ultimately and logically said, okay, now I want you to walk as dear children. I want you to walk that the world may see the validity of this life. That God, that people might have a life that will be displayed in front of the whole world. That Jesus Christ is God's only answer to sin. Boy, brother, I get involved in, in talking about these things and the logic of the Christian life. And, and I just am excited. I'm excited because I've been born again. I've spent the last 33 years of my life desiring to have intimate fellowship with this one who has bought me at the price of his own blood. I've been redeemed. I have his life in me. I will. I have no more have the guilt of my sin that's been atoned for. And Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my everything. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to live that life within me. Now I know intimate fellowship with him. And it is just absolutely wonderful. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. You know, I want to read to you real quick. In Psalm 145, if you want to turn there, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to turn there just because some of these I like to, I I don't want to paraphrase. I don't want to, I just want to quote exactly how it is written down because who better to say that than God's word. But what are some of of the characteristics of God? Do you know that the Bible is the only place God's written word, God's inerrant inspired word, is the only place that we know of his character, of of how he treats us and who he is and his character. Listen to this. Remember this. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, 
He's slow to anger. He's great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. The Lord is merciful, and he's kind, and he's tender. We learn these attributes not only through the word of God, but we, as we get to know him and he reveals himself through his word, we come to realize that this is our God and we know him by experience. You remember in Lamentations, for those of you that, that know uh, the Bible, you go to Lamentations, Jeremiah wrote, and he's called the weeping prophet. And when you read Lamentations, you can understand how he's weeping over his nation that has been inflicted with sin. But you know, the Bible, Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Listen to this. In Lamentations chapter 3, starting verse 21, he says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. It's through the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fell not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I'll hope in him. So what happens every morning? His tender mercies, his compassion, his love, his his tenderness to have fellowship with me and, and to walk with me and, and, and to, for me to come to him, Daddy. That's what Abba means. Abba, Father, Daddy. And climb on his, his lap, so to speak, and pour out my heart, my supplications before him. That is new every morning, brethren. Wow. Therefore, be imitators of God. Look at verse 2. Walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, before I get uh, too involved in this discussion, because I could be here all day talking about verse 2, but you look at, for example, if you want to turn with me, if not, that's okay. But you turn back to the book of Leviticus to get these understandings. Because remember, the Bible says that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world for us. He was in the mind of God in this uh, from all eternity. And if you look at the fact that when God produces the understanding of his love for us, it's astronomical. The first three chapters of Leviticus, uh, you see where the sweet-smelling savor uh, is is a uh, as they were producing sacrifices. The sacrifices being offered. Now, I'll just read you a bit of it. In chapter three, uh, it says, "Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar, the burnt sacrifice on which was the wood that is on the fire, as an offering made by fire." a sweet aroma to the Lord. And you see that mentioned several times in these chapters. Sweet aroma to the Lord. You know, how does God look at that? You know, I go, I'll go. read another verse, verse 16, And the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Jesus' sacrifice was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. He was pleased. That's what propitiation is. It's the sacrifice that pleased the Lord on our behalf. Jesus was is the only way to get reconciled to God. God is holy. 
We are not. The Bible says over and over, and you look at Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, our iniquities have made us separate between us and our God. Our sins have separated us from God. And God in his mercy and his kindness sent his son so that he might die on a cross by taking our sin upon himself, that God who foresees everything, the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, saw our sin and took, had all of our sin heaped upon Christ, so that Christ cried out in prophetic fulfillment, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And at that time, the sky grew dark, our sins were laid upon Christ, and he paid the full price, brethren, for our sins, past, present, and future. And that sacrifice was a sweet-smelling aroma to God as Christ was paying the price for what separated us and God, our sin. And so as Christ paid the price and suffered that separation for a short time, so that you and I, brethren, would not have to suffer that separation for eternity. And that sacrifice, that propitiation, that, that sacrifice that pleased the Father on our behalf was a sweet-smelling aroma. And we see that way back in the pages of the Bible through the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, the tabernacles and the temples, how the sacrifice that was laid down as atonement for the people's sins was a sweet-smelling savor in anticipation of the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist would say, who takes away the sin of the world, would die on the cross, and his sacrifice would be a sweet-smelling aroma to God on our behalf. That, my friends, is the definition of beautiful. That is the definition of God's love and God's greatness and God's mercy if you ever doubt the love of God for you, you will look at the cross. The devil has done such a good job in the pulpits across this land and across the world in stifling these pastors and everybody from proclaiming the true gospel. What happened on the cross? Like I've said in that story that I've told so many times about my own grandfather, very religious man at the end of his life, he told me personally no one ever told him what that man was bleeding to death on that cross for. All these religions wanted his money, but they didn't care about his soul. You, your soul, is cost Christ his life and shed his blood and crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know why? Because God placed upon him the sin, your sin, that he might be forsaken for that short time, that you would not be forsaken forever in hell. And that is a sweet-smelling sacrifice and aroma to God. That, my brethren, is, is love. That's how much God loves us. So therefore, let's walk in a way pleasing to him. Let's, let's make our bodies a living sacrifice that we will walk in a manner that's worthy 
to be called a Christian. He says in verse 2, and walk in love. We've just been talking about the love of God. As Christ also loved us. Wow. Christ loved you selfishly. He put you in front of himself. He didn't ho-hum and, and, and shy away from walking the cross. The Bible says in, in, in Luke's account that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He willingly accepted the cross for you and I. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was in agony praying to the Father, he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That cup is a cup of suffering on your and I's behalf. He said, but nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will for you. So look at verse 3. So therefore, knowing this and the love of Christ and the holiness of God, verse 3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. First of all, I want to say fornication. We all know what fornication is. It involves not only sex outside of marriage, but it also involves all sexual immorality that is not well-pleasing to God. God produced the wonderful act of sex between a married man and a married woman, between a husband and a wife, to be enjoyed within the bonds of, of, of marriage. It is not only safe, it is exciting. You know, these people that say that, that, Things become dull in marriage after a short few years. Those people don't know Christ. Because if we'll see, whether we get to it today or not, but if we'll see as we get toward the end of this fifth chapter, we are going to see where Paul's talking about husbands and wives, husbands loving their wives and so forth. And you know what? In that great verses, verse 22 and down, Look at verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking concerning Christ and the church. As we are to be faithful to our wives and, and, and live before our wives' husbands as an example of purity and loyalty and an and, and example of Jesus Christ. Where does sexual immorality come in? Where does fornication come in? It doesn't. It is, it, is, it is nowhere to be found in the, in the one who walks and wants to please Christ. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs that those that fear the Lord will walk uprightly, but those that are perverse in his ways despise him. So verse 3, fornication, all uncleanness, covetousness, covetousness gives me, 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 me. You can't take the word covetousness and me and have them separate. They are one and the same. You covet. You covet. You covet. The Bible says you covet and you cannot have, so you murder. And you fight and you quarrel. James says that. He says, let it not even be maimed among you as is fitting for saints. Well, wait a minute. Here we go. Saints. You know, it's amazing to me that so many people stumble over what a saint is. 
I'll tell you what a saint is. If you want to flip on with me back to Romans chapter one, and some sometimes you can you can silence um, and put to correct understanding those that say, "Well, he's such a saint." They slur around and they, uh, you know, brother, you and I are saints. We are saints. You know, uh, a saint is a sanctified person set apart. Set apart for the for God. We are a saint is a person who has come to Jesus Christ and is separated. We have been saved by faith. We have been sanctified, set apart for him. Paul in the first chapter of Romans. He's talking about uh, verse 2. He promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures the gospel of God concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Romans 1 4 declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. He goes on to verse 5 We receive apostleship and obedience for the faith among all nations. He says in verse 6 that we are the called. Of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to look at. Look at verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, or more literally called as saints. C.I. Schofield says they are saints, and that by divine call, just as the Apostle Paul was an apostle by divine call. We are saints by divine call. So no wonder he ends verse 3 back in Ephesians 5, 5 verse 3. Don't let this fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, don't even let it remain among you because you're a saint. You're a separated one. You've been born again. Look at verse 4. Let's go through these quickly. Time is, is slipping by. Neither foolishness. Wow. Neither foolish talking, filthiness. Let me read it to you in the text of the King James or the New King James puts it. He says, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting. Which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. I don't have to break these down. I, I look at these almost daily and I say, Lord. Is this so named among me? Filthiness. Filthiness? We have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Filthiness would seem like a really a strange thing to do for one that's been cleansed. You know? I wouldn't clean my prized coffee cup, put it back in the cabinet, get it the next day to use it, and look at it, and it's filthy dirty. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. It's been cleansed. It's been it's been washed, you know. The Bible says in, in uh, Ephe or excuse me in Revelation chapter one verse five. I love this. King James says that we've been washed from our sins in His own blood. It's not even filthiness is not even a, an option. Foolish talking, foolish talking. Boy, we could go on and say what foolish talking really is. You know, when we try to put somebody down, when we try to puff up our, our own self, when we try to, you know, fit into a, a, 
and you know, an alignment in life, if you so to speak. We're trying to make something out of nothing. We're making mountains out of molehills. You could go on and on. Coarse jesting. You know that 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 type of speaking that has no uh, value to it. It's empty. It's like cotton candy. Our our words, the Bible would say, are to be gracious. You know, are to to lend grace to the hearers, and 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 you know, to talk to somebody as you know, our lips are are speak knowledge. They're you know, they speak life. They speak wonderful words. They speak comfort. They speak encouragement. Uh, you know, correction if we need be, but but coarse jesting is is taking your words and and adding no value to them. You know, uh, your words you can hurt people by your words. You can you can punch, kick, or stab somebody, and they will get over it. You injure somebody with your words, you put them down, or you or you fling uh, poisonous venom to them. Uh, that hurts. Whether it's foolish talk, whether it's crude jokes, whether it's uh, in, you know in malice, you know, brethren, malice is is defined as the intent to cause harm. You know that that you know we want to get that little dig in or or you know what have you, um, you know, or the dirty jokes or the you know what have you. They're just not fitting. We want to give thanks. We want to give thanks for the life that we've been given. And again, getting back to the beginning of the conversation um, today, how can you give thanks in a fullest extent when you don't know to the fullest extent what you have in Jesus Christ? You know, it's like it's like having a picture of a a beautiful Dodge Ram. That's my favorite vehicle, which I've had, you know, for many years. It's like having a picture of one versus having the real thing. I mean, know of all the intricate details of the truck and everything, but when I have one and I experience it and I know it, I'm thank- more thankful than ever for the reality of what the picture originally showed me. For this you know, verse 5, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, that is a logical statement right here. They're talking about a man who who has been, you know, the, the Christian who's been cleansed, who's been brought to this high position, who's been raised with Christ above principalities, power. Let me go back to this, brethren. Let me just remind you of what has happened to us. We've not only been saved by grace through faith, it's the gift of God, not by works, not by our works. Any man should boast, I've been saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But look at verse 6 of chapter 2 of this wonderful letter. It says, And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. And in verse 7 he says, Why? That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his what? Kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So now he's finishing verse 5 back in the fifth chapter by saying, you know what? The fornicator, the you know, the sexually immoral, the unclean person, uh, the covetous man who me, me, me first, uh, 
He's basically an, an idolater. He doesn't have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No wonder he said, verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. We're going to get that explained here in the next couple of verses. What things? Things we're talking about. Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, foolish talking, coarse jesting, you know. Um, these things, if, you, if you, you think about them, they are the embodiment of an unsaved individual. They are the embodiment of a man who does not know Christ. You know, let me read to you a list real quick of the, uh, the the works of the flesh, the 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 embodiment of the unsaved man. Okay, we were we were in Galatians five once before, looking at the fruit of the spirit. But let's go back to Galatians five and see what these works of of the flesh or the unsaved man is. Starting verse nineteen of chapter five of Galatians says, "Now the works of the flesh are evident." In other words, they're open. They're, they're, they're in the history of mankind. You can't watch the news. You can't be out in public without noticing these things. In other words, they are, again, evident to all. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness. Sound familiar? Lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies. Outbursts of anger or wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you before and just as I've often told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. It is ridiculous. I heard it say one time, and this was so elementary, I know it was from me. <laughs> you know, it'd be like, uh, you know, it'd be like me being a man, and I had, and my father, my dad was a man's man, so I, I, I look to, to men that are men, and uh, God calls men. Um, it would be like me going out in public wearing a dress. That just does not compute with me at all. And that's exactly the way the Christian is to look at his new life. You know, I love, I love what, again, John, when he was receiving the revelation on the island of Patmos, and he says about Jesus, he says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, we've been washed You've been made clean. So verse 6, back in Ephesians 5, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things we've just gone over, the wrath of God comes on the, on the sons of disobedience. He said, Therefore do not be partakers with them. Go on to verse 8. Look at this verse closely. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Think about that statement. You were once, now you are. You were once darkness, now you are light. 
Paul says the same thing to the Thessalonians. He said, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. You once were, you now are. Remember that, brethren. That is, again, he is saying in the context of this scripture that you were once this way, but remember the first three uh, chapters of, of this wonderful letter of Ephesians and your true understanding of who you are now in Jesus Christ. Now you are light. Walk that way. And that's exactly what we're talking about. And by the way, before when, before we actually get to the latter part of this chapter, let me explain to you, there is no better way to exhibit the life of Christ than in your home and husbands in your marriage. And I say this to the husbands because as we will look when we get to these verses, the three areas that the Bible explicitly talks to husbands about regarding their wives. Those three, real quick, before we get there, are number one, we are to protect them spiritually. We are to know the Word of God. We are to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to live the Word of God and allow Him to live His life through us as a testimony in front of our wives. Number two, we are to, love, we are to protect them physically. These are not necessarily in chronological order, although they can be as far as, as what a lot of people exhibit them. So we have spiritually and we have physically, which I don't think is too much of a distraction for many husbands. But here's the third one, where to live with them and protect them emotionally. We are to be kind. We are to be merciful. We are to be gracious. We are to be understanding. The Bible says to live with our wives in an understanding way. These things are all byproducts of our relationship with Jesus Christ. So getting back to uh, verse 8, chapter 5, you were once darkness. Now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Do you know that that verse and that command would be absolutely impossible if we had to live that kind of life on our own? If we had to pull ourselves up by somehow by the by our bootstraps and do it ourselves, that would be impossible. And God in his mercy reminds us not only once but twice in this epistle, once in chapter one and once in chapter four, that it's by the Spirit, it's by the sealing of the Spirit that that we can live this life. Not only does the Spirit baptize us or transfer us from death into the body of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But he not only places us in the body of Christ, he not only seals us for the day of redemption, he not only sets his seal upon us as secure, but he also gives us the power to live this life. He gives us the power to overcome sin. He gives us the understanding of the scriptures. He doesn't 
show off himself. He doesn't uh, bring merit to himself. He doesn't point his, his proverbial finger back to himself. He always points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He always gives testimony of Christ. So when you go in these churches or you hear these fancy preachers on TV or so forth, that they're all, oh, and I was shaken by the Holy Ghost, and I was, you know, producing signs and wonders and oohs and ahs. Run away from that, shut out the TV, because the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer will always point to Jesus Christ. He will always bring to remembrance, Jesus said, of the things that he has told them. He will always open our eyes to the scriptures and teach us from the scriptures. He will always point to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is no wonder that by the Spirit and by his indwelling, this character, this fruit comes out, that Jesus Christ might be glorified to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Again in verse 8, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk that way. Verse 9, for the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit, not fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. You know what's amazing to me, brethren? At the end of Matthew... When, when Jesus was giving, uh, you know, he uh, was crucified. Three days later, he rose from the dead. You know, he spent 40 days on this earth instructing and about, you know, the kingdom and so forth, only appearing to, to whom he will. And then I want to read you something that I'm sure most of you have contemplated or thought about. But as he says, as it says here that, that, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, and I'm not, I'm not spiritualizing anything. I'm just saying what, what is amazing to me. Our God reveals himself as, his, as the, you know, the triune God and he communicates. In other words, our God uh, reveals himself as a triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know... So Matthew's ready to ascend. He's, he's ready to ascend. He's blessing his people. He says, therefore, go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not names in the name, because there is only one God manifested in three divine persons, making the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So back in Ephesians verse 9, he says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. All goodness. Jesus says there is one good, and that is God. Righteousness, because Jesus Christ died and his righteousness was imputed to our account. And truth, the Spirit is the truth. He will guide you into all truth. It's the fruit of the Spirit, brethren. It's the goodness. It's the righteous life. It's the truth that we live. Look at verse 10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. We want to find out what pleases Him. Excuse me for those planes flying overhead. Uh, wow. I'm going to uh, I'm going to going to close here. The uh, patient can only take so much medicine, right? <laughs> I know this is a lot. Boy, is this wonderful! Um, the man of God spends a lifetime 
plummeting the depths of God's word, and he never even scratches the surface. No wonder it's often been said that we will need eternity to uh, to get to know God in his wonderfulness. You know, we're told in verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. In other words, we're not to have intimate fellowship with those that that walk in a way that's contrary uh, to God. We want to please him in all respects. For it is shameful, verse 12, even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Verse 13, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. You know, that's that's a wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit, is he comes in and he and he lightens our life. You know, I was I was sweeping the kitchen floor the other day, as I'm sure you know, all of us have, have witnessed many times. And, and it was in the afternoon, and the sun was coming in uh, through our, our uh, windows in the backyard, and uh, and it shone right in on the floor. And I thought I had done a pretty good job. And I'll tell you what, the floor was a mess. <laughs> And that's what the Spirit does in our life, brethren. We we come in, and He doesn't go, "Hey, you know, you better clean that up, or I'm going to smack you around." But He lovingly exposes those areas that the Lord desires to deal with in your life. And He comes in, and and He's so loving because He has cleansed you. He has He has made you his, you're a child of God. He has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. He is going away and he's preparing a place for you. John chapter 4. And he said, if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be always. We will always be with him. Paul, at the end of his discord in 1 Thessalonians 4, says to comfort one another with these words. That's what Jesus was doing in John chapter 14, the first three or four verses that he's comforting his disciples on things. In fact, you know, um, I love this program. Let's turn back to John 14 real quick, if you, if you have a Bible there. Let me just read these things real quick. They are wonderful to me. He's up in the uproom discord, as this is called. It's by the way, it's chapter 13, all the way through 16, I believe he was, he was as Thomas Isis instructed me, he was, he was saying in his high priestly, prayer, high priestly prayer of John 17 in the Garden of Gethsemane um, before he was betrayed. But anyway, John chapter 14, Let not your heart be troubled, brethren. <laughs> you believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus saying, what he's always said, to see me is to see the Father. I have come from God. He says, I'm going back to God. But he said in verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Look at this. I go and to prepare a place for you. Brethren, that is personal. That is personal. You know, at the end of at the end, you know, when when they were in the upper room after Jesus was raised from the dead, and, and that's what we call him, doubting Thomas to this day. By the way, Thomas is saying, "I won't," you know, because the first time they were gathered up there, Thomas wasn't there, and they're saying, "The Lord's risen, the Lord's risen," and Thomas says, "You know what? <laughs> I'm not going to believe in him 
unless I actually put my finger in his in the nail imprint, so my hand in his side and all this. What does Jesus say after he comes back the second time in the upper room and Thomas is there? Jesus says, hey, put your finger here. Put your hand on my side. And Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God. Finally got some sense about it. But what does Jesus say? He says, Thomas, you see me and yet you believe. Blessed are those that have not seen me and yet believe. Brethren, Jesus says, in my Father's house, or many mansions, for not so I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you, listener, or I go and prepare a place for you, Jeff. <laughs> and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you will be also. Why do we take time in talking about walking with Christ? in a manner that, that men would see him, but more importantly, in a manner that is pleasing to him. Because we've been made sons and daughters of the living God. Wow. You know, I can't help but think of what John wrote in his, in his first epistle, First John. In the light of what we've all just talking about, he says, Now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence in him and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Let me, let me read that to you again. First John chapter 2, verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence in and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Getting back to Ephesians 5, uh, looking at verse 8 again real quick. For you were once darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. Wow. So verse 13, all that's in the light is exposed. Whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. See that you, verse 15, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Not as fools, but as wise. Wow. Redeeming the time, verse 16, because the days are evil. Redeeming the time, taking up the time, because the days are evil. You know, Paul says the same thing, but in a different way to the, to the, in the Colossians. In Colossae, he says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Again, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt when you talk to people. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Brethren, we live in a very evil time. We live in a time that is unprecedented in the history of man. We not only live in a time that, that the Bible says that evilness will go from bad to worse, that evil men will go from deceived to being deceived and to deceiving more and more as time goes on. We are 
We constantly hear of false teaching that Jesus warned his first thing when he said, when is going to be the sign of your coming again, of your coming back in the end of the age? He said, let no man deceive you. We see all the signs for the first time in history converging together. The, the earthquakes, the economic crisis, the world uh, changing and the false religion heading to world one world government, the federations of nations forming, which where the Antichrist will come through, the explosion of information, the, the explosion of technology, the worldwide uh, chaos of travel, um, all the, the massive earthquakes, the pestilences, the famines, all these things are, are converging together. We see the nation of Israel after 1948, the explosion of end-time prophecy that is happening at an alarming rate. We look at Psalm 83 that specifically states that surrounding nations want to do one thing and consent, and that's get rid of Israel forever, drive them into the Mediterranean. We see that for the first time in valid happening right now. We see Ezekiel 38 and 39 where, where the northern part of, of Europe, Russia, is, is going to come against uh, um, small Israel, that little real estate of land. We see that coming. We see Syria. We see Iran. We see all the nations that are the big nuclear powers against uh, Israel. We see Russia in alliance with these nations. We see the gateway setting itself up. We see all these things happening. We are to redeem the time because the days are evil. You know, there's there's Christians out there that you won't even know they're Christians, that they talk about other things, that they're interested in other things. They're, you know, as if Jesus wasn't even coming back. Let me read you a passage and I'll end with this. I love I love the Bible. In the Bible we have everything not only that pertains to life and godliness the apostle Paul says or excuse me the apostle Peter but we have check this out brethren we have God himself telling us what will happen the end from the beginning. We can prove that the Bible is the Word of God. We have no speculation. Well, I think that it is. You have churches abound today that, that tear the Bible apart and say, well, there's some of it's myth, and well, some of it's this, and well, some of it's that, you know. And, and uh, no, we know, certainly. And so in these evil times, we are geared up. Wait till we get into chapter 6, brethren. We're going to see the the spiritual warfare, and yet God has provided for us armor that will penetrate. You talk about the military having, you know, uh, piercing, you know, armor that can withstand, you know, any kind of ammo or whatever. You, you have all these things. That is nothing compared in this spiritual battle that we're in down here. God has given us everything, and it all relates to his word. It relates to how we walk in Jesus Christ we can walk in this world knowing the signs of the times, knowing the time that we're in, having fullness of joy, fullness of joy, anticipating the coming back of Jesus Christ, living confident, loving, having a solid marriage, having a solid relationship, knowing who we are. Wow, this is amazing. Now, the days are evil. You get a lot of people, you know, the world without sight of Christ is clueless. 
that this world is heading towards judgment. They're clueless that they're heading towards judgment. They just know that there's a gnawing at their conscience and they don't know what it is. And therefore, they are fulfilling with everything that they can. But there are lukewarm Christians. There are Christians that don't even know what is happening. That, that To hear them talk and to watch them live, it's almost as if they're, you know, let the chips fall where they may. But let me let me tell you something that the grace of God produces in a life. Okay, and we've been studying the grace of God in this epistle. We've been saved by grace and so forth. Paul penned this epistle, okay, to Titus. Listen to what he says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. But this grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the expectant life of a Christian. So to see what this life is, what this life entails and where this world is going, and yet to be filled with the joy and confidence of the Lord is a blessed life indeed. This is the Christian life. This is a wonderful manifestation of God himself. You know, religion finds some way to appease God, some way to to appease uh, our creator. And yet, we see that Christ has pleased the Father on our behalf. Christ lived a perfect life. Christ was the perfect sacrifice, and he paid for our sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, as Peter would say. Wow. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, I'll end with this, verse 17. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You want joy in your life? Lay everything down at the feet of Christ and say, Lord, today, today, I don't want to live for me anymore. I want to live for you and please you. Father, bring the things into my life today that you would have me to deal with. Use me in the situations that would please you. Use me for whatever you will. Give your life to Jesus. Give everything, your finances, your your marriage, your relationships, your, your relationships with your kids, your relationships with your, your parents, your relationships at work with, with those who you rub shoulders with every day. And give God your mind, your mind. He wants to control your mind. He wants to, to he wants to, Invade your thoughts. He wants to clean up your mind that you might fully understand what the will of the Lord is. That you might, in your prayer life, have access to God. You know, the chief, as Schofield will say, the chief privilege, or, or the privilege, and the chief privilege of a priest 
which we're all called believer priests, is access to God. We come to God and we speak with God freely. And and in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we make supplications and melody of the heart to the Lord through prayer, through that wonderful access he's given us. Free your mind. Get rid of those thoughts. Give, give them all to Christ. Take your thoughts who are captive to the obedience of Christ. Let him rule your thought life. And yet, when God speaks to us through his word, come to it saturated with a desire to know him and to know and understand his word, and he will. Do not be unwise, brethren, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I think that we'll suspend our study for this time and and. Uh, and I look forward to the next time that we get together. Brethren, I just am so excited that you've taken the time to invest uh, in these studies, that you can uh, share my excitement of the Word of God, because soon, very soon, He's coming back. And He could come back at any moment. You know, there is nothing left, nothing that hinders or must happen before He comes to catch His bride, his church, away in the air. There's nothing that can happen. That's what it means by imminency. It can happen at any moment. And I pray today that you would make that commitment to him, that we would all make that commitment to him afresh, new every morning, great is his faithfulness. You can stub your toe all that you can, and yet you can wake up in the morning and realize that God loves you. And then he's made provision for you. You know what? One of the greatest things, uh, we're going to reserve a study in the future of First and Second and Third John. But if you understand the love of Christ to uh, such an extent, listen to what he says. And again, I will definitely close with this, brethren. Um, the Bible says that we have an advocate. And what an advocate is, is... He's, he carries on eternally because of the eternal effectiveness of his sacrifice. He restores us to fellowship. And John says, To my little children, those things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. He not only was the sacrifice that pleased the Father for our sins, but he is the one that restores us. Because of his eternal effectiveness of his sacrifice, he restores us. All we have to do is come to him and lay ourselves before him. And he restores that fellowship because not only uh, he is gracious, but because his sacrifice was an eternal Sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice for an eternal security, brethren. We can rest assured that our God has us in the palm of his hands. And until next time, I, I just pray that you would think on these things, that it would be well with you, and that we can just love Jesus Christ and show the world that he's alive and he's alive in us. Brethren, I thank you. God bless you. Until next time, bye-bye.